You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Who is Andrew Phillips? Huh. Wow, how many ways to answer that question? I would hope, at the, in the broadest perspective, just a really nice person. Um, but, uh, but for those who are listening and want to know a little more, um, so yeah, my name is Andrew Phillips. I, um, as we were discussing before we just started, um, I, I have... I have been part of or suffered is the way I like to put it around the software delivery life cycle in, in many different categories throughout my career. Um, I've been a developer for most of my life. I still am from an open source perspective, contribute to a bunch of projects. Um, I've been the, the head of strategy, AKA chief PowerPoint officer of startups working in this space. Um, I've been um, an infra engineer, AKA head of duct tape, uh, trying to make sure, trying to you know, herd all the cats, uh, which is always fun. Um, and now I work for Google as the head of product management for uh, cloud continuous delivery as part of Google Cloud Platform. Hmm. How did you, it would be helpful to kind of hear perhaps how you um, made your way into, let's say, um, DevOps as sort of like a discipline. Uh, because you mentioned, hmm. you know, in sort of, you've mentioned that you were the VP strategy, you mentioned that you were a sales engineer, um, like, how did you get into this, like, precise vertical of, let's say, software development, technology development? Uh, I guess, I guess, as, as, as with many people's um, career trajectory, a little bit of Brownian motion. Um, I was, uh, so, uh, I was an engineer many years ago for TomTom, uh, the GPS device maker back at the time when that was the, the hot industry that was growing like crazy. It was lots of fun. Right. Um, and I, uh, I went from them to a, um, a, a consultancy in the Netherlands. This was in Amsterdam, um, uh, who roughly, for those of you who know who ThoughtWorks, you know, that kind of uh, consultancy. And the first thing they did actually is they, um, they made me part of a, a spin-off startup that they just created called Zebia Labs. Um, that was one of the early vendors building, uh, well, deployment, uh, automation software, now application release automation software or continuous delivery software. Um, and so I, uh, I got involved into that, in that space technically quite a lot. I then also happened to, uh, through a bunch of open source projects that were doing multi-cloud, um, get in touch with a lot of the people who are, if you like, some of the original quote-unquote legends of the DevOps community, people like Patrick Dubois and others um, who live down the road in Belgium still does. Um, and so I've, 
I've kind of I've been in that space as as the person building tooling in that space, and I've also known all of the people. Um, and obviously, DevOps and given its relationship to Agile, um, you know, as someone who had been working in a company that was big in in doing Agile transformations and, and Agile uh, enablement and training for companies, this sort of move towards iterative. Um, approaches to everything, I think, was was very close to what I was doing, and so I guess that's the kind of the broad perspective. I was doing some of the tooling, I was doing some of the process. I knew the people who were quote unquote inventing the culture, mm. um, and I guess now I've come kind of full circle uh, to be at a company like Google that arguably has been doing this uh, way before DevOps was even a name. Mm. Great. So you can kind of see hints of your views um, across the various interviews that you've done on the subject. But you seem to have, um, you know, some uh, some unique thoughts. Let's say around um, uh, the software development labor market um, as a whole. And so, you know, in the gig gig ohm uh, interview, which you've done, and you know, I don't know to what extent this is like verbatim, or if they kind of summarize um, what you had said. But but so you made a point about. Um, you know, and let me read the quote. So at, at some point, there's either a choice between that for any company, for any CEO. Do you want to be in that rat race? Do you want to pay ever-increasing salaries? Do you want to do whatever it takes to get those people? Or do you want to make some kind of determination that you say, well, maybe I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to have the fancy innovation lab with a cappuccino machine or scooters and, and the quote continues. <laughs> and so I think that's... Yeah, that's I remember that. that. That's yeah. Like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, no, I mean, you know, the quote continues and the segues or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it sounds like, I mean, this is the culture that is um, sort of commonplace at um, the Valley's most prominent startups. And some would say, you know, given um, at least what uh, people here, you know, in terms of like napping rooms at Google and such that those accommodations also exist there. So maybe like, taking a step back and saying how you think about this generally uh, and maybe this type of comfort is overdone in a corporate environment. Like we'd just love to kind of hear your thoughts. Sure. Well, I mean, I think as, as a, you know, as a very first um, point, I should, I should state that I'm definitely not trying to be um, churlish. I am of course deeply, deeply grateful for the incredibly lucky coincidence that I happen to be good at something that has enormous market value nowadays. And I, uh, you know, um, certainly compared to people who I think from the perspective of their knowledge and their skills are just as good, but just happen to be working in a different field where, you know, they definitely don't have any of the luxuries that I and then people like us uh, are able to. So we're, TLDR, um, we have a lot of zero world problems going on in general, and that is an amazing, uh, amazingly lucky thing that I'm deeply grateful for. Um, I think... That that doesn't you know that doesn't of course I'm not trying to go against my quote I guess what I was trying to say is that um, if you take DevOps as a you know if you take the sort of generally accepted theme that DevOps is this mix of processes and and tooling and culture but that tooling and culture um, play a very strong role there which you know that narrative has been formalized very effectively and impressively by my colleagues uh, from Dora, who are now Google colleagues as well. Um, the question, of course, is like, yes, we can now prove pretty well that if you're able to make it up into this elite category of DevOps performers, that's pretty good for you as a company. Um, but the point is, 
um, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of companies um, and some of the resources that are necessary to make it into this elite category are very scarce, such as people, highly skilled people. And so I think, you know, we have, we have ultimately a resource shortage that we all know about in this industry. Um, and I think it's a question, that's what I was kind of trying to say, that's a question that, that companies have to ask themselves. It's like, there's no doubt that it would be better for them to be in this elite category, but, um, you know, is it feasible for them to try to achieve that? And I've certainly also spoken to customers who say things like, look, we have such a hard time hiring the kind of people we feel we would need for that, and even more so retaining them, mm. maybe because the business we work in isn't just that interesting, or because from a location perspective, you know, people don't want to move to where we are, and, you know, remote work is hard for us, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's important for the market in general um, to have an answer for these kind of companies too. Mm. Um, and to basically say something like, look, um, that's, that's great. We understand that. It's a trade-off that is acceptable. Um, sure, you're going to lose out versus some other companies. And, and, you know, depending on how cutthroat the market you're in, maybe a, not a, you know, a trade-off you should think about. Um, but there are some things you can do, some tools you can adopt, some sending a more lightweight approaches you can make that will still get you to a better place than you are now. Um, without putting you in a kind of impossible to win situation. That was a very long-winded answer, but I hope that gave you some perspective on, on my thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first part of this quote is, you know, you talk about, so let me ask you this, should every company be an IT company? Mm -hmm. Oh, a question. Um, I mean, I should, well, I, I, in some sense, I think that the, 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 the horse is bolted to use a use a phrase. I think uh, Gardner and Forrester and a lot of the the the, the people that companies listen to um, have made this message sufficiently clear um, that uh, people consider it almost a no brainer. And and I should clarify that I'm sort of speaking more in a personal capacity right now of than necessarily representing Google's uh, corporate opinion, which which is very varied, of course. Like I'm not the only person here. Um, uh, I think there is, again, like the nuanced answer is um, most businesses will need some level of IT capability um, to be effective in the modern age, just as a way of reaching your consumers, um, engaging them, and doing so in a way that meets their basic expectations. Um, that probably requires you to up your game a little bit from an IT perspective versus where you are today. Um, does that mean that you need to turn this inside out and, and hire a chief digital officer and make them the sort of the person that drives your business strategy going forward? Well, maybe not. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, we see a lot of successful companies uh, and, and arguably you could potentially say that most of the winners of the dot, many of the winners of the dot-com era found a way to take a known recognized personal need and to use IT effectively to deliver that. Um, it's not so much that we identify brand new needs of humans, um, but that we found a way to meet those needs uh, efficiently and scalably with IT. Um, and so in that sense, um, maybe the question is not you need to become an IT company, but you need to be better at recognizing your core value um, and delivering that efficiently with information technology and modern mechanisms. Mm. How should How should companies... Um, let me ask this question a different way. So 
is being an IT company, does that necessarily have to include um, having an elite level of, let's say, um, DevOps talent and, you know, um, strong DevOps practices? Like at what stage of a company's life cycle should a company be thinking about these things? Oh, okay. So, I mean, the, the last part of the question makes it interesting and, and challenging. Like, what stage of a company's life cycle should you be thinking about these? Um, I'm, I, I'm curious to what extent it, there is actually a strong correlation between part of the company's life cycle um, in the sense that, you know, whether you're a growing company or a declining company or a stagnating company or a company that hasn't got started yet, um, IT will play a role in, in whatever part of the life cycle you're in. Um, whether you need to be investing right now in making your IT DevOps elite or not, um, I think is partially also a question of how, how well you're doing right now uh, with your IT as a whole and how what your competitive ecosystem and competitive landscape looks like. Sure, um, if you're in a, you know, if you're hypothetically a retailer in a very competitive market and your market share is being eaten into by a competitor that's launching new mobile apps every five minutes and, you know, QR code payments and whatever, whatever, Probably that's something that, from a competitive perspective, you need to you need to draw level with. If you're in a business where um, you still have a relatively strong value proposition that is somewhat differentiated um, and that's doing okay, uh, do you now need to be pouring buckets of money into revamping your IT if it's kind of good enough? Maybe not. Um, I think I think in between those there is a legitimate sort of general guidance, which is that um, IT is a fast moving space, uh, maybe one of the fastest moving spaces within your company. Um, does that mean that the people who are working in your, in your IT space need to have an eye on the ball? Does it mean that it is useful to have some subset of them experimenting with new things and staying sharp and understanding where there's opportunity for your company? Absolutely. Um, does it mean that you need to, you know, replatform on the latest and greatest uh, new framework 0.0.1 that has just been released in production for your main application because some engineer has discovered this and, you know, just wants to try it out? Well, maybe not. Um, I think one of the, the sort of fundamental challenges I see in this area is that because little room is left structurally for experimentation and staying fresh, and trying new things out, um, the IT people that you have, if they're eager, which is a great thing, um, they will use existing critical important applications to try new things out. Yeah. Uh, or they will try them out in ways that aren't really giving you a useful signal because it's just the tiny marketing site that nobody cares about anyway. Um, and, and so in some sense, what I'm really saying is that um, IT doesn't have a, a great formal, typically there is no great formal structure for recognizing that R&D is important if you have an IT organization. Um, and and, and you know, formalizing the concept of R&D or experimentation or what you want to call it within your organization, I think is a very important kind of concept to live with. Mm. So as a, as a product manager um, at Google, how much mm -hmm. sort of creative space do you have to kind of build your own mental model 
for what R&D looks like in the context of the team which you lead? Or is there sort of a generalized approach across all cloud teams, across you know, all teams that is applied? Um, so, I mean, in my current role, that's, it's not a straightforward question to answer because as a PM, Google engineering teams don't report to you. Mm. Um, so at the end of the day, it's not my choice. Uh, what engineering teams get to spend their time on exactly. Uh, I think at Google in general, there's definitely a strong culture uh, of learning and experimentation, uh, which which basically goes so far. I mean, it, it's strongly related to the notions of internal mobility and, and trying to encourage an entrepreneurial culture. So we have um, both a bunch of formalized ways of like in-house incubators, if you like, where you can pitch an idea and you can legitimately get full time off to work on that stuff. Obviously, we have 20% kind of activities that a lot of engineers work on in other areas. Um, uh, and then, you know, there is there is definitely also a, a path and a very, you know, a very well-recognized practice where if you've solved a particular problem um, in, in the context of your own application that you think is applicable or with a few changes could scale well to other teams, um, then you can decide uh, to go on that track and you can basically, you know, stop focusing so much on your current project and actually focus on trying to sort of frameworkize or, or, or standardize around this particular component or framework that you've built. Um, Google allows this largely by way of, uh, you know, the, the way or one of the strong ways we do this is not just internal culture, but also the way we structure evaluations in the sense that uh, you are kind of, and of course, progressively as you get more senior, um, you get to choose your own destiny, which basically means you get to choose your own way to deliver impact. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you can find out that, hey, I don't know, I can I can create 10% efficiency gains across a large number of teams if I manage to productize this framework internally and get it adopted, then more power to you if you can go and do that. Um, of course, that, you know, it, 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 that's a choice you can make and it, it, the, the choice might be better made in investing your time in shipping the, the application that you were currently working on because that's going to have direct user impact, yada, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, but, um, I mean, to your point, you know, Google has a, in that sense, I think a very strong culture of, of trying stuff out. And that, that obviously goes all the way to the top in the sense that um, Larry and Sergey frequently talk about this idea, you know, that they, you know, they'd rather have it's better to have 99 failures out of 100 attempts, but the one that succeeds has a thousand x payoff. Right. Um, you, but legitimately, Google is also in a slightly unique position in that uh, we can afford to do so. Like, it, you know, there are lots of things you can do if you have a an enormous revenue generating engine, or multiple of them, in fact. Um, versus a company that has to look very carefully at where it's investing in its dollars right now or it's pounds or it's yens or it's euros or whatever, um, and has to focus that on, on like being incredibly productive at, at the same time. But I mean, I guess TLDR, we know from experience that uh, putting un untested, untried things just randomly into production is, is not, you know, has bad outcomes in general or challenging outcomes. Um, so, it's even a sane investment to provide some, some space or some limited capacity to do that. One framing I like a lot in this area is um, uh, an engineer formerly at Etsy, Dan McKinley. Uh, he wrote under a blog post called McFunley. Um, 
he talked about the way Etsy does, uh, you know, you get your three innovation tokens. Um, basically, in, in the scope of a particular new project, there are three new things you can try. You can try a new data store, you can try a new app framework, you can try a new logging and monitoring engine, whatever, but you can't do more than that. And he has a very nice blog post, uh, obviously provocatively titled, Choose Boring Technology, um, in which he explains very uh, succinctly why, uh, from an just from an operational scalability and overhead perspective, more innovation uh, per project is just not uh, sustainable over time. Google has a, has a very interesting internal blog post that's unfortunately not external, um, I think, um, in which uh, one of our senior engineers talks about the difference between programming and software engineering, mm. and classically, classically, I don't know, I wouldn't say classically, but in a, in a nice, somewhat technical phrase, um, I think the phrase is made that software engineering is the double integral of programming over people and time, nice. uh, which, which I guess for the non-mathematicians basically means that programming is what you as an individual can do today to get some code out the door. Um, but once you start to have to figure out how to make code work over large numbers of people and over longer spans of time, um, very different skill sets and practices are required to make that work. Um, and uh, most people, what they learn in, in university or in boot camps, or they teach themselves is programming. Right. Um, software engineering is something that's very hard to teach yourself because you're not in a context where you are working on you know, a two million line code base thing that somebody wrote five years ago in a language that you don't really know very well, using conventions that you're not entirely familiar with, Etc. Etc. But the reality is that that is 90x percent of the world's software development, um, and so the how to make that work is, is in some sense, the fundamental challenge of, of software engineering education, if you like. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about sort of your views around software engineering education. So you know, um, to my mind, I think people come out of CS programs fundamentally unequipped to add. Um, you know, value in the context of like the problem set that companies that they'd work for operate in, um, unless those companies have really developed apprenticeship programs. And it seems like, it seems like among those companies, Google is one. Like Google does seem to have a really um, strong ability for a fresh graduate to come in, contribute, and sort of rank up, you know, within the context of the Google meritocracy. Maybe you can speak to like what the company's general processes around that um, for like any aspiring software engineers, as well as maybe like your personal views on apprenticeship um, and maybe education generally. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, at the risk of repeating a bunch of the things I just said, I mean, I think Google is, is hopefully somewhat good at this because we've had lots of people working and, and struggling and wrestling with the, this problem over time and yeah. because of the the large amounts of, of money we can afford to invest in, in addressing this problem, we have built a whole bunch of tooling and processes around trying to make this work. Um, uh, you know, there's classic examples of it, but there are also costs attached to what Google does that not everybody can afford, uh, to give a simple example. Um, well, I mean, what I mean by this is like Google fully expects a new hire, even a senior hire, so someone with like 10 plus years of software development experience, um, to take multiple months to ramp up on Google's internal development stack and, and processes. 
Mm. Um, if you think of random other company, uh, especially ones that do you know consultant-based like short-term development, you couldn't possibly say, hey, well, yeah, we're going to hire a bunch of consultants to do a short-term project, and the first four months they're going to do nothing except understand how we develop. Totally. Yeah. That's that, that's not an option, right? Um, so Google can afford to do this because, of course, they're looking to hire people and, as you said, keep them uh, for, for a large, large part of their careers, potentially. Um, but Google has also the part of this process that people learn and adopt um, are things that, you know, make, um, that, that, that allow you to go from a programmer to a software engineer. And, or, you know, realistically, um, that isn't always an easy um, uh, friction-free uh, learning process for the people that undergo it. Um, like, you know, obviously me too, like as a developer, I don't really want to be given like a COBOL program and told to fix some bug that nobody's been able to fix before. Um, I want to build my own stuff and use the latest and greatest cool things and so on and so forth. So, you know, there is a bit of a reality check that's required there and, and the, the Google has the very fortunate position of you know, people come in here um, they are willing to change their own expectations and their own way of working because they trust that Google knows how to do this. Mm. Um, which is, you know, uh, I, I have certainly worked in companies and I sometimes have been that person themselves that has been as a, um, as a scarce developer commodity, as we were saying earlier, I've kind of been able to say my way or the highway. Like, I'm not going to use this this stuff that's lying around you. Your way of doing this is silly. Like, I'm not going to use CBS, whatever, something like that. You know, you yeah. mean, developers are in a lucky position where they can, in many situations, they can make these statements and kind of get away with them. Um, at Google, that's not the case. Like, you know, want to work here? You develop the way Google develops. And as to what I said earlier, sure, if you can prove that there are actually benefits at scale to adopting this new language and you can make it work just as well as the others, you're welcome to do so, um, but there's so much that's gone into making the existing language of this Go or Java or whatever else Go Google uses really productive um, that you've got a long way to go before you're going to get there. Um, I think other, I mean, some concepts is just to wrap this up a little bit. Oh, well, let me talk a little bit about education as well. I think, so I definitely think apprenticeships, I mean, um, work experience or experience coding in a multi-person environment on existing code where trade-offs have to be made in a business context um, is, is critical. Um, I think, you know, as part of education, like putting multiple people together to work on a larger project is one way of doing this. But um, I think the other, the other challenge with this is, of course, is that what, what people also tend to experience either well or somewhat painfully when they start working as developers is that only a certain portion of your time is spent actually writing code. Um, a whole bunch is spent of time reviewing code and a whole bunch of time potentially is also spent understanding the business context in which you're working and why you're doing what you're doing, um, as well as attending mandatory trainings, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, um, there is, and, and ironically, you know, as you get more senior as a developer, in fact, that changes. Like what we see uh, internally is that as the seniority of developers goes up, the amount of time they spend reviewing designs, uh, pull requests, or, or change lists, as they're called at Google, et cetera, goes up. So you're spending much more time influencing and mentoring other people and trying to guide them in the right direction than actually bashing out code yourself. Um, 
And I think that kind of stuff is, 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 is very critical to understand that it's there. I think it's not that easy to teach in a kind of classroom or even in an experimental setting. Um, uh, so uh, to, to your point, I would definitely encourage anyone that is going through an academic software development degree. I think they're very, they're great. Uh, I mean, I can say from an N equals one, I certainly benefited a lot from doing that, <laughs> understanding a lot of the fundamentals of what software development is about. Um, but, um, you know, don't fool yourself into thinking that you will come out of that understanding exactly how you will be working at scale in a large company. Uh, and, and, and um, Yes, anything you can do. I mean, the, the nice thing about software development is that, yes, you can do an internship for a company, and there's lots of companies that do them, and some it's easier, some it's not so easy. Um, but there's also vast free opportunities to contribute to relatively complicated and advanced t projects called open source, um, which is something that is, is almost unheard of in other spaces. Like, I don't know, if you want to become a nuclear scientist or something like that, you can't just like find a group of people who are doing like, I don't know, buy a mail USPS, like nuclear reactor research. <laughs> this, right? Um, it's very true. You, you will learn so many of these nasty and frustrating things about like waiting for reviews, how to do good reviews, um, how to make sure that the code you write is in line with other people's styles, basics of continuous integration and testing and validation, pair programming, but asynchronously, like working over Slack with colleagues. You will learn, you are able to learn so much of that in the open source community. It's a fantastic, it's not just a simulator. You can actually do that for a, for a profession. Like, you know, if you pick the right project, you are basically, if, you're, if you become good and you become a trusted committer of any one of these brand name projects, you have a, your CV is basically already written. Like if you have a commit bit on say Kubernetes or whatever, the job market's pretty wide open to you. Um, and so, you know, there are very few, very few areas where you, you know, without having to pass the, the rigors of say academic peer review, you can prove yourself out in a setting that is both beneficial for you and is effectively, uh, you're building your, the most effective part of your CV off the bat from home in your spare time. Uh. That's a compelling place to end. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Andrew. Appreciate your time today. Great. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.